Hey, this is Russ Adcox, lead pastor at Murray Hills Church. This month we're doing a series called Launch, which is about how to reconnect to your faith or how to grow spiritually. I hope you enjoy. Let's go to Acts 4. This is a, uh, we've been in a study called Launch, Reconnecting to Your Faith, and we've looked at four different things that you can do to help grow spiritually. Spending time with God, spending time with others, using your gifts, and today we're looking at uh, sharing your story. And I went ahead and peeked at the uh, small group questions for this week. And Tim and Abby have done a great job. Like, they've, they've done, produced all of our small group studies, and we just the first time we've done them in-house and so they've been doing the study and producing the questions and all this stuff. And I was, just, I was just peeking at the questions as I was preparing this message. And the very first one was, have you ever had a cringy evangelism moment? And uh, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> all of them have been cringy. If you've been in church for any length, I'm like, this is whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, or you've been on the receiving end of it or the giving end of it. Like for me, all evangelism moments have been cringy. Steve, talking about communion, you know, like some of the past, what it was like. I mean, that's bringing back memory, Steve, because I'm thinking like our evangelism moments. When I was growing up, we had door knocking campaigns. Any fellow door knocking campaign participants? Yeah. So if you had a gospel meeting or you had a revival, you had to go out and knock those people's door, stranger's door, you know, and ask them, hey, do you know Jesus? Would you like to know him at the Hornwall Church? I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's cringy and it's awkward and it's weird. Uh, when I was in college, I had a college-level course called Personal Evangelism, and we graduated with a, a notebook that was much thicker than this Bible, probably a two-inch thick notebook, on how to lead someone to Christ. This was three credit hours, and it took an entire semester to learn how to lead someone to Christ. Um, and then you guys remember, you've heard, you know, like the Romans Road, we've been taught that. We've been taught the five acts of salvation or five steps of salvation. We've been taught the bridge illustration. I remember, you know, sitting down and practicing in some of our Bible classes with a napkin, like, hey, with this bridge illustration, you can lead someone to Christ. And then, you know, just, you can just sit down and have coffee with them. And in just a minute, you're going to lead them to Christ. And that's all, that's weird. <laughs> like, I want you to make the most important decision of your life in the next 30 seconds. And I'm going to draw it out right here. And as soon as you see this illustration where the cross covers the chasm, I mean, you're there. And the worst, though, the cringiest, I had to go to Google to find this, the gospel tracks. You remember the gospel tracks? And not just the gospel tracks, but the tricky gospel tracks. You got that one for me, Noah? The one that looks like a million-dollar bill. I don't even know if a million-dollar bill exists. But this thing folds up, and it looks like real money. And apparently what you do is you throw it out on the street and then somebody's going to stumble along and pick it up and go, oh, wow, look, I found some money. And when they open it up, it says something like, you know, hey, you, you thought this was worth something, but you're worth far more to your heavenly father. I mean, it's just, <laughs> no, just stop. Like, I don't know why, but when it comes to evangelism, we try to get cute and we try to get clever. And it's, it's almost like we try to outsmart the Bible. Like, it's like we try to do something that's not really in the Bible. Like, we think that we've got to have some type of method or program or, you know, these, these videos. Or we got to do something to, to help lead people to Christ. Because we know it's important. We want people to know Jesus. Uh, we want our friends to know Jesus. But, like, we, tr we, out we overthink it, I guess what I'm saying. Like, we try to outsmart the Bible. We just overthink it. And I'm going to show you a story today. It's in Acts chapter 4 that uh, is so simple. And all it is, you don't need all of the, you don't need college level courses to know how to share your faith. You don't need, you know, different gospel tracts to know how to share your faith. You don't need any formulas or programs or anything like that. You just need 
Jesus and the Holy Spirit and your story. And that's it. If you go through the book of Acts, that's it. They just told their story. And that's why we're talking about sharing your story today. And it may feel weird to have that in a series on spiritual growth. But if you stop and think about it, it's really not. Because when we share our story, not only do the people that we share that with grow, but we grow spiritually as a result. When we share our story, like we share it so that it encourages and motivates others, but it also encourages and motivates ourselves when we share that story. Stephen Covey uh, always says that the best way to learn something is to teach it. And I think he's 100% right on that. So when we share our story with people, like, hey, here's what God's done in my life. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. This is the way that, you know, the Spirit's been working in my life. When we share that story, we grow spiritually. And others grow spiritually as well. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 4. So let's take a look at it. Acts chapter 4. I'm going to have it all on the screen as well. But uh, you may want to have, have your own copy as we read through this story. Now this is happening, just to set this up real quick. This is sometime after the day of Pentecost. The early church is just booming. Like there's thousands of new people coming to the faith. So Jesus has, has died and was buried and resurrected and he's ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon the early followers of Jesus. Peter preaches that first gospel sermon. There's that awesome story at the end of Acts chapter 2 about how the church was together. There was this sense of community and purpose and the church is together. And you know, new people are coming to the church all the time. Uh, miracles are being done. I mean, it's just, it, there's just enormous period of growth that the church is in. But Acts chapter 4 is the first sign of resistance. So this is, this is the first time that uh, the religious establishment kind of says, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? We thought we dealt with Jesus. And now this, this Jesus way continues. And so we'll pick up that story right here in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. And the resistance came from a group of, of Jewish people called the Sadducees. I want to hit that one real quick. The Sadducees were a, uh, a sect within Judaism that did not believe in resurrection. So, the, the, you know, the early disciples, their whole message is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. So this is problematic to the Sadducees. And, and the, the priest and the, the temple guards and all that would have been members of the Sadducees. So here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. So the priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now I want to pause just a minute here to clarify what they're teaching. The disciples are not just teaching that Jesus rose from the dead. The disciples are teaching that there is resurrection of the dead. That means not just that Jesus rose from the dead, but that all who believe in Jesus will rise from the dead as well. That is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. And the early church, that is, if you read through these early messages uh, in the book of Acts, you're going to see the resurrection of the dead come up many times. If you go back to the the earliest creeds of the church, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, you'll see the resurrection of the dead. This was a core doctrine of the early church. It's not until later in our time that we think of eternity more as like souls floating on clouds and those kinds of things. The, the early church is talking about a resurrection of the dead. It's not just that your soul survives for eternity, but your body. There's a bodily resurrection that will occur. And this is a problem for the Sadducees because they don't believe in that. They do not, they reject the resurrection of the dead. Not only Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of anyone else. So they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So 
since day one, this is about 8,000. It says men. That was all that got counted there. So this is, this is thousands of people that have now come to faith. It says, the next day, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. And this is, this is kind of like Israel's supreme court, if you will. So Annas, the high priest, was there. And so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. And they had Peter and John brought before them. And they began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So they're, they're, you know, and you recognize Caiaphas, you recognize some of those names, they were present at the trial of Jesus. So they thought they had dealt with Jesus, this radical rabbi that is teaching he is the son of God and is going around forgiving sins, like he has the authority to forgive sins. And so they had, they had, had Jesus killed, crucified on a cross, and now this message of Jesus is continuing to spread because this, this rumor is out that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. And so now this message is continuing to spread. And so they call them all to account for whose name are you doing this in? Like who do you represent? And uh, this, is, I mean, this is a trial, this is an accusation, and these people literally have the power of life and death over their hand. I mean, they had, these are the same folks that when they tried Jesus, these disciples ran away. And now these disciples are standing boldly before them. And we'll talk about why here in just a minute. But verse 8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we may be saved. There's a lot that happens in these verses right here that I want to draw your attention to. The first thing is they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So what, what, what fueled the early church was not just the resurrection of Jesus, but also this, this empowering of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, we get weird about the Holy Spirit. It's, you know, King James got us to think of it as the Holy Ghost, and so that, that made it kind of weird. The Holy Spirit's just the presence of God living in our lives. That, that's all you got to think of it as. It's just God's presence living in our life. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and this Holy Spirit is filling up the church. And because of that, these men who had run away at the trial of Jesus, are now standing before some of the same rulers, and they're not scared and anxious anymore. They're bold and they're courageous. But it's not them. that They're probably still scared and anxious. It's, it's not them. It's the Holy Spirit living in them, speaking through them. And, and Peter acknowledges that like right at the front, or at least Luke does in his account of this, that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit when he addressed these people. And then the second thing, and this one we often miss, is that their crime was kindness. You hear that? Why were they called to account? They were called to account for an act of kindness that they had done for somebody else. And I think that is a, when I think about my growing up in the last, I don't know, many, many years of church history, I think that's been a missing component of evangelism. Maybe the most important missing component of evangelism. Because evangelism is not about winning a debate. It's not about winning an argument. It's not about being right. And that's the way I was taught to do evangelism. If I can just show you with my logical proofs, if you would just sit down and listen to my logical explanation of this, you'll see that I'm right and you're wrong and you need to get saved. 
But when you do that with an arrogant attitude, it turns people off. And the reason that, that Peter and John were giving a hearing, the reason that people were listening to their message, the reason that people were listening to their story is because they had shown kindness to a man who was in need. And that's what they're being called to account for. If, if we're not kind, we will never get a hearing. And I think that's true today more than any time. And it's, it's harder today more than any time because we've got technology that makes it easier to be mean-spirited. It's much easier to be mean-spirited behind a screen than it is face-to-face. And so, you know, through our texts and our social media and all that, like, we've got to be very, very careful that we make sure kindness is the root of evangelism. If we want to share our story, the only way that we gain a hearing with other people is by being kind to them. That's got to be the foundation. Number three, they were very clear about the source of their kindness. The source of their kindness is Jesus Christ. They said it is by the name of Jesus that we are doing this thing. The reason we've done this good work, the reason we've done this good deed is not so that you would look at us and not so that you would praise us and pat us on the back and say, man, you guys are great. You are, you are such great disciples. You are such great people. No, the reason was that you would look to Jesus. So Peter's directing all the attention to Jesus. And then the fourth, and I've already talked about this just a little bit, but I think this is so critical. They were resurrection centered that is the core teaching of the christian faith is the resurrection of jesus like before the resurrection jesus is another rabbi jesus is another revolutionary jesus was just another person executed by uh, roman authorities or jewish authorities i mean but the resurrection is what changed things the resurrection is what changed the meaning of the cross the resurrection changed the meaning of all his teaching like for the disciples when jesus rose from the dead it was like if he rose from the dead then he is who he said he was and everything that he taught us is true like that, that, and that changed the, the entire course of the early church. That central truth right there confirmed that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. And I want to read this, because I'm like Steve. Like, I want to make sure I say this exactly right here. If the resurrection is true, then the rest of it's true. And that fact carried all of the early evangelism efforts of the church. And ought to carry all the evangelism efforts of the church today. Because that's the central truth. If, if the resurrection is true, then everything else is true. And that carried their evangelism. Not their church brand. Not their church social media platforms. Not their church merch. Not their lights and fogs machines. Not their plasma screens. Not celebrity pastors. The risen Jesus is what carried the church forward. The risen Jesus. And that's why they were able to say with such boldness, salvation comes from no one else. If you saw a man rise from the dead, you would say the same thing. Salvation comes from no one else. That's not some weird exclusive claim. That's just like, I mean, they saw something that none of them had ever seen before and would never see again until the end times. And it's like, that's, salvation comes from no one else. He truly must be the Son of God. All right, verse 13. I closed my Bible, so I'm going to go to the screen. <laughs> I got excited talking. Uh, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and this is talking about the Sanhedrin. So this is that, when, when, and they're the enemies. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, that's a, that's a cool verse. We all love that verse. Uh, that's not a compliment that they're making to these men. Remember, these are the enemies of Jesus. So they're not saying, wow, you guys have been with Jesus. We're so impressed. 
No, this was to convict them of wrongdoing. They were certain, like, these are not learned men. These are ordinary men. They're not religious authorities. These are folks that have obviously receiving some type of authority that we, this authority could come from no one else but Jesus. And so they're convicting them with this statement that they have been with Jesus. To say they've been with Jesus is not a compliment, it is a conviction. And so now they are guilty of being with Jesus, and now they can do something about it. But they got a problem, verse 14. Here's the problem. They could see that the man who had been healed standing there with them, and so there's nothing they could say. Because, I mean, like they couldn't deny that some great work had been done. So they know that these men have been with Jesus, and they want to convict them of that. But look, at the, here's the man they healed, so this great work has been done. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. And I would love to have been at that meeting. They're like, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do? Because, I mean, nobody can deny these guys have done this great work, and nobody can deny that this man who was lame is now walking again. And nobody can deny that, that Jesus is doing, I mean, these followers of Jesus are doing some pretty incredible things in our community. So what are we going to do? How are we going to stop it? How are we going to stop this? And so they said, everyone in Jerusalem living knows that they've performed a notable sign. And we cannot deny it. Go to that next one for me. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we got to stop this hope. we got to stop. I mean, people, people are, no, we got to cut this out. We must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So they called them in again and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's kind of a, an empty threat. Like, and I don't know if the disciples know it. The Sanhedrin knows it. It's like, well, we can't do nothing because nobody can deny they've done a very good thing. But we're going to bring them in and say, okay, you guys got to cut this out. Like, this, is, mm, this has gone too far. We thought we'd handled this. You got to cut this out. Just stop. And Peter, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 19. Go that one before me. It says, I'm sorry, our computer is on delay. He told me that last week. I forgot. Sorry, brother. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after further threats, they let them go, for they did not decide how to punish them. And this is just such a great part of it, because you can see, like they said, listen, you guys got to cut this out. You got to stop talking in the name of Jesus. I mean, I know good things are happening, but you got to stop talking in the name of Jesus. And Peter says, we're not going to stop talking in the name of Jesus, because we can't be quiet about all the things we've seen and heard. Jesus has done a work in our lives, and we're going to tell people about it. And so they said, well, you better stop. Cut it out, because, (laughs) I mean, what do you say? What do you say to that boldness? I mean, it's like, what? They can't think of any way to punish them. And so they, they dismiss them. And look at this. This is the end of the story. Verse 21, 22. It says, uh, all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And I have no idea what that last verse has, why that has anything to do with it. But it's like when I read that this week's study, and I'm like, come on, Luke. Man, there's a little age discrimination here at the very end of the story. And, and I looked it up in a commentary, and that's exactly what he meant. He means exactly what you think. Luke's point is, that dude was old. Look, I mean, look. Look how old that guy was. That guy was over 40 years old, and he's healed, and he's up walking around. 
And so this great, this great miracle is happening. Every story, if you go through the book of Acts, every story in the book of Acts is like this. It's fascinating because the early church could not be stopped. Not because they had fancy evangelism training. Not because they'd read books on evangelism. Not because they had formulas. Not because they had five steps to share with people. Or they had a, a, a bridge illustration to share with people. Or they could throw down you know, gospel tracts that looked like denarii or something. I mean, they had, it was because... They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had done something in their life, and they wanted to tell other people, hey, this is what Jesus has done for us. This is what the risen Lord has done in our lives. And, and that's why the early church grew. And that's why their faith grew. And you can see the faith of Peter and, and John and James. You can see the faith of Paul growing as they told their story of what Jesus had done in their lives. And here's the thing. Every single one of us has a story. Like we've got a story in our lives of what God has done in our lives. And it may be a story of how we overcame a, a battle with addiction. It may be a story of how we, we dealt with a, with a health scare in our lives. It may be a story of how we helped a family member deal with some of those things. It may be a story of how we went through a crisis of faith where we weren't sure we believed anymore, but now we believe again. Uh, it may be a story of how we grew up in a fundamental background, you know, grew up in this fundamental background. It was all about rules and religion, and then we discovered that there's a relationship and there's a Savior there, and we discovered grace. I mean, every single person in here has a story, and that story has the power to change people's lives. If we're willing to tell it, and as we tell it, we're willing to give credit to Jesus, who is the one that brings about the change in our lives. And so we've been trying to do that uh, here. We've been trying to collect stories and you're going to do this in your groups this afternoon if you're on the same schedule as us you're going to tell I think your story in the group you know like just just to share your story here's what God has done in my life and this is this is how Jesus has brought me through that story has the power to change people most of all it has the power to change you and the more you tell it the more it changes you so we've been trying to collect them through uh, YouTube and we've got a playlist on YouTube, like last week, I, I, I wasn't here, but I watched online, uh, Darlene's story. That's an incredible story that needs to be told. Uh, months before that, we'd filmed the Taylor and Kelsey story. That's an incredible story. Like God's done an incredible thing in their life. And they, they just recently got engaged. And so that, that's a story that needs to be told. Um, Connor's story about watching online all during the pandemic and then choosing to get baptized. And I mean, that's a story that needs to be told. And so I'm trying to be more attuned and open to the stories that are out there to say, hey, we need to share those stories. And so when I got a, a text back, it was probably a month or so ago, I got a text. It was a link to a Matthew West song about forgiveness. And it was a guy who said, hey, sometime when you have the time, I want to tell you the story of how I forgave the drug dealer that killed my son. Well, that's that's a story that needs to be told and it's a story about Jesus and it's a story about forgiveness and it's a story that goes back to this sign right here um, if you go out highway 50 just a little just less than a mile from this church and you go out just before you get to Tom J Hitch that signs on the right side of the road if you look in that picture you can see on down in Tom J Hitch the, the C store that's there probably have driven by that hundreds of times and, and never really paid attention. Who's, who's Calvin Wayne Jinks? Well, Calvin Wayne Jinks was a trooper. Um, his family lived here in Murray County, and he grew up in Murray County, and he was killed 
uh, at a routine traffic stop. And his dad uh, tells that story, but also tells the story of how he went through the process of, of finding forgiveness for the person who killed his son. It's a, it's, so I'll let Norm tell the rest of it. It's a pretty incredible story. Watch this. Good morning, uh, my fellow Murray Hills church members. Uh, this is Norm Jenks, and uh, I'm here today to kind of relay a, a chapter in my life that was really tough. Calvin was a, a fine young man growing up in uh, both sides of his family. We had law enforcement. Uh, my wife's father uh, had a, a very long career at the Tennessee Highway Patrol, 30 years. Uh, ended up retiring as a lieutenant. I had two uncles on my side of the family. One was a city policeman and one was a, uh, a university policeman on a, on a major university uh, where I grew up. And, uh, and Calvin and uh, my stepson Daniel always wanted to pursue a career in law enforcement. Calvin went into law enforcement, I think, I want to say about 2005. And uh, he was out on uh, patrol on January 6th, just got through uh, booking a DUI um, individual that he had pulled over. And I guess he had about 45 minutes left in his shift. You know, Calvin could have, you know, easily just probably went home and continued taking care of the paperwork for that DUI that uh, he just incarcerated. But uh, he went back out on the patrol to finish his shift, and he pulled over a couple individuals that were speeding. It was just a routine traffic stop. Uh, I think Calvin had about two and a half years in at the highway patrol. Uh, he pulled over these individuals in Tipton County, and there, there wasn't a, a big uh, lane, I guess, on the passenger side of the road. So when Calvin pulled over these individuals for a routine traffic stop, uh, Little did he know that uh, we had uh, two drug runners that were coming up out of Texas. One was 17 and one was 19, and they were up here in Tennessee to set up a drug network for the 17-year-old's brother. But unfortunately, Calvin pulled them over, and he got the 19-year-old out of the car and asked questions, are there any drugs in the car? He said, no, sir. And he said, are there any guns in the car? And he again said, no. And, uh, and Calvin uh, handcuffed him and detained him behind the patrol car, and when Calvin could not walk around to the passenger side of the car. When he bent down to look in uh, the vehicle to the 17-year-old, unfortunately, the 17-year-old uh, raised a pistol and, um, and shot my son twice. And unfortunately, tragically, took his life. Um, and in the meantime, they, they, the 17-year-old got out, they uncuffed the 19-year-old, and they took off. And if you want to talk about moments uh, in my life uh, as a Christian and or a struggling Christian, I mean, it really hurt me that a routine traffic stop and, you know, a 17-year-old young man would, would take my son's life. What happened is those individuals, they went back into Tipton County and got rid of the car, uh, went to a Walmart, changed their clothes. And uh, these individuals uh, then got someone in Tipton County to give them a ride to Nashville. And uh, so they, this individual, there were two of them, they took these... Uh, the shooter and the, the, his accomplice to Nashville to a motel. And on their way back, the highway patrol um, had known then that uh, someone had, had uh, murdered a Tennessee highway patrolman and a THP officer in Dixon uh, had somebody pulled over on a side of the road. Well, these two individuals failed to observe the move over law and came close to this officer. So this officer told the people he had pulled over, he said, well, it's your lucky day. He handed their driver's license and registration back to him and then pursued the two individuals that uh, did not move over for him. And when he pulled them over, 
and he started asking questions, and then uh, he found that there was a sizable amount of marijuana in the back seat of their car. And when he questioned those two individuals, they then they came clean and told him a story. They had just gave two uh, uh, Hispanic individuals a ride to uh, Nashville, and between the Dixon Sheriff's Department and the uh, Tennessee Highway Patrol and the TBI, they were able to put together the pieces of the puzzle. And those two individuals uh, rode back to Nashville and, and showed them where they were staying in a motel. And it was divine intervention uh, that I was uh, telling a good friend of mine that our Heavenly Father allowed those folks to not move over. They've, they were, in essence, pulled over. They were able to find out where the... the the shooter and his accomplice were at Nashville, and that is how Calvin lost his life. It was just a routine traffic stop. The, the guy was doing 62 and a 45 on a back roads in Tipton County, and, and Calvin pulled him over. I mean, he was an unselfish individual. Um, had 45 minutes left in his shift. He could have probably ended it that day early, but he chose to go out and fulfill his full shift, and that's just kind of trooper he was. But uh, unfortunately, um, a tragedy struck himself and our family. And, uh... This is what she put together to kind of re to remind us of uh, the tragic situation. There was Calvin's beautiful wife, Sarah. Uh, she was in med school at the time. And, uh, and uh, this is Alejandro Juana, the young man who uh, shot my son. And, uh, and this is Mr. Garcia. Um, he was the driver that came up from from Texas. This is a Trooper Calvin Wayne James Memorial Highway. This is out on Highway 50. As you're going towards Lawrenceburg, they named that stretch of uh, highway after Calvin in, in his memory. And uh, this a young kid dropped that off at the lemon tree. Um, that colored that and dropped it off. There's a picture of Calvin. He was quite the outdoorsman too. He could uh, caught a catfish barehanded down at uh, Tim's Ford Lake. Everybody kept telling me he couldn't do it. <laughs> this was the um, license plate that was on the front of Calvin's Trooper uh, Patrol Vehicle, Tennessee 4462. This right here was uh, an award given, given to us from the National Crim Criminal Enforcement Association. Um, sent this to us um, in memory of Calvin's life. All the time we were dealing with that uh, chapter in our life, uh, at first, you know, I, in the grieving stage, and, uh, and I almost wanted revenge for the individuals um, that were involved uh, with that tragic event. And, uh, you know, I had news uh, casters and stuff reaching out to me and asking me if I thought uh, the death penalty was appropriate. And, uh, and at that time, I think I made a statement of, you know, I guess, you know, an eye for an eye or something to that matter. And then, Later on, as we go through the trial, um, my daughter kept asking me, you know, why, why did God let something like this happen? And uh, I had to explain to her at the time, um, Bridget, that our Heavenly Father doesn't let stuff like this happen. Um, we don't have the answers right now, but uh, one day we'll find those answers. Um, I'm sure our Heavenly Father will bring that to us. And um, during all the grieving uh, with Calvin's brothers and sisters and you know, my wife, which was Calvin's stepmother at the time, we came from a uh, divorced family. But uh, Calvin's mother was grieving, um, all the kids were grieving, and I kept telling my daughter that one day our Heavenly Father will give us an answer to this tragic event. And I think it was probably the seventh or eighth time 
uh, we went to Tipton County for hearings and the shooter, whose name was Alejandro Gowana, and he was on the stand that day testifying and he said that uh, that given day or evening uh, when he shot my son, he said, I had the devil in my heart. And uh, I reached across my wife and I grabbed my daughter's hand and I squeezed it and I said, Bridget, did you catch that? And she goes, what? I said, he, that's the answer that we've been searching for. Um, he took Calvin's life that day and he had the devil in his heart. Um, he just relayed that in front of uh, the, the whole courtroom, in front of our family, and I think that is the answer that we've been searching for. But I just want to let the membership know that uh, while I was going through this, I fought and struggled for about two years with the, with the essence of forgiveness. And um, it was a burden that I was carrying on my shoulders for almost two years. And uh, it was on an Easter Sunday, I think in uh, 2009, that uh, I looked at my wife and I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't struggle with this grief. I can't struggle with this guilt. But I went down in front of the congregation and I asked uh, our pastor at the time to pray for me and I wanted to ask for forgiveness for carrying so much hurt and meanness in my heart uh, towards the individual that took my son's life and the individual that didn't warn him that it was going to happen. You know, like I said, I almost wanted revenge until I went down and professed my forgiveness to our Heavenly Father and to the individuals that took my son's life. And I can't tell you how much better that made me feel. Um, it took a lot of guilt. Um, and a lot of hurt off my heart. And I know that uh, all of us in our lives, in our daily lives each and every day, or in our past, I think we all have had chapters in our life where someone has hurt us or hurt our family. And we still carry that today. And all I'm saying today is, is I, I hope and pray that when you come to a time in your life where you can ask for forgiveness and put that hurt behind you, it'll make your daily presence, it'll, it'll just open up your heart uh, to love, it'll open up your heart to forgiveness, and it'll help you lead your daily Christian life a whole, in, in a whole lot meaningful way. Thank you. Tell your story.